The scripture reading on which the sermon is based is 1 John 2, 18 through 27. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they, are, they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you. Please send your Holy Spirit so that we may benefit from your word. Please change our hearts, change our souls so that we may be more transformed into the image of Christ. May we continue worshiping our Lord and Savior Jesus as we hear his words and as it changes us. Father, we need you. Words from my mouth are meaningless unless it is empowered by the Spirit. And that is what we ask. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Antichrist. I love talking about the Antichrist, especially during the summer. And why? Why do I love talking about the Antichrist? Because it reminds me of my summer youth days. When I was in youth group and we would go on retreats or we would go in lock-ins and they would talk about the Antichrist. We would watch Kirk Cameron videos left behind and we would talk about how he, he, heroic we would be in the face of the Antichrist. Now it was kind of a traumatic experience because even to this day when I go somewhere and I'm the first one there and no one shows up for a couple of minutes, I think, has everyone been raptured? Have I been left behind? And it kind of comes in to me. Now, I know some people still hold this view. There's a lot of brothers and sisters that believe in this. But I want to just tweak this story of the Antichrist just a little bit. Because I think the narrative we tell ourselves today is a bit inaccurate. And why do I say that? Because when we talk about the Antichrist today, it's supposed to instill fear. It instills fear and we say, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. But yet when the author John always brings up the Antichrist, he always brings it up to comfort the people of God. And in that way, I think it's a little bit inappropriate the way we talk about the Antichrist because it doesn't bring comfort to us. And that was John's intention always, that when he brought up the Antichrist, 
that the people of God would come together and feel comforted that they are loved and that they are still the children of God. Now, mind you, John is the only one who uses this term, antichrist. And in every time, and every time he uses it, it comforts the people of God. And so what we're going to talk about today is the Antichrist. Who is the Antichrist or who are the Antichrists? Then, of course, we have to talk about who the Christ is. And then thirdly, we will talk about the charisma. And I'll explain what that last word means, but it ties it all together and why talk of the Antichrist and the end times actually brings comfort to the people of God rather than fear and sensationalism. So first... Let us look at verse 18. John begins, remember, calling them children. Remember the context of this whole letter. The people have experienced some kind of church split. The people have gone out from the community, and these people are hurting and ailing. And that's why John is calling them children. Come. And now at this point, he's going to begin to talk about the Antichrist. It's a weird thing, right? Imagine a church split. Imagine you're going through some counseling and the first thing that the person brings up is the Antichrist. That'd be weird in our context, but maybe it's because we have lost the true meaning of what the Antichrist does and who the Antichrist is. John says, children, it is the last hour. And what does the last hour mean? It means that the end times are already here. The Antichrist does not bring the end time, uh, does not bring the final end times. It is Jesus Christ himself who ushers in the end times. And when did the end times begin? When Jesus died, when he resurrected, and when he ascended into heaven. According to scripture, the end times is from that point, Jesus' ascension, until Jesus comes back. That period is the end time. That period is the last hour. And then what is to happen during these end times, during this last hour? John continues, says, as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. So most Christians are always fearing one Antichrist, but here John says explicitly the Antichrists are here. They're already here, and they've been here for thousands of years. They have appeared since Jesus' ascension. And who are these Antichrists? Who are these people? What do they do? Now, in the common narrative, we say the Antichrist is always some powerful leader who's going to take away our national security and our economic security. Growing up, I've heard, I think since Ronald Reagan has been the first Antichrist, and every president after that has been the Antichrist. And for some California flavor, Arnold Schwarzenegger was our Antichrist. He played Terminator 2, then became governor. The signs are clear. But we're always fascinated of seeing the future Antichrist. But John says explicitly the Antichrists are already here. And what is their main purpose? Their main purpose is to teach the people of God that Jesus is not the Christ. 
Verse 22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. You see, the whole point or the whole mission of the Antichrist is to show other Christians that Jesus is not actually who he says he is. That is the whole goal. But somehow we have made the Antichrist's goal primarily to take away our national security and our economic security, and now that's when, we've, and that's when we become afraid. But yet when I explain, no, the Antichrist is just telling, people telling others that Jesus is not the Christ. People are like, oh, that's not that bad. But is it? I would say that this picture of the Antichrist is far more dangerous than the Antichrist we have painted today. So what if they take away our national security? So what if they take away our economic security? The Antichrist will gladly give you all of that as long as you say that Jesus is not the Christ. Listen to this quote that my professor wrote. He says, what would things look like if Satan really took control of a city? Over half a century ago, Presbyterian minister Donald Gray Barnhouse offered his own scenario in his weekly sermon that was also broadcast nationwide on CBS radio. Barnhouse speculated that if Satan took over Philadelphia, all the bars would be closed. Pornography banished and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am, and the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. That is the goal of the Antichrist, to make sure that people no longer believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And the Antichrist will gladly give you money and give you security as long as you exchange it for your eternal security. But here John talks about the Antichrist to remind the people that the Antichrist have failed. That the people of God still have Jesus as their Christ. That Jesus is still theirs. And what does that mean? What does it mean when they profess that Jesus is the Christ? And the first thing that John says, that you believe that Jesus is the Son. Yes, it is true. We are all sons and daughters of God, but Jesus is the Son. Meaning what? Meaning that he is the only begotten Son begotten from all eternity, not created or made, but part of the Trinity. And he has come to us fully man, but at the same time has remained his full status as God. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And this is a great mystery that all generations have been dealing with. And in this community, the community that left this community that John is writing to, they believe that Jesus was not man. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 2, we'll read about it later, uh, John says this, By this you know the Spirit of God. 
Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Meaning that there was some segment that believed that Jesus was not who he said he was. That Jesus was only God. He wasn't fully man. And for them, because it was unbelievable that God would come down as a man. No way. Why would God do that? Because they believed that everything in the world was evil. The body is weak. The body has lusts and temptations of the world. Why would God submit himself to that? Yet we see in scripture that this is clear as day. Jesus became one of us. Now for us sitting here in the pews today, we don't struggle with that. What we struggle with is the other side of the equation now, where we don't believe that Jesus is fully God. Everyone says Jesus is man. Everyone will give us that. Of course Jesus existed. Jesus is purely man. But to say that he's God, that's stretching it a little bit, isn't it? But here we learn that when we believe that Jesus is the Christ, we believe that he is fully God and fully human and that he has come from the Father. And why did he come from the Father as fully God and fully man? He came to save sinners. When we say that Jesus is the Christ, we are not only acknowledging that he is the Son of God, but that he is the Savior of sinners. So what we believe as the people of God is that we are sinners and that we are in desperate need of saving, that no one here, no one on this earth is perfect, that we all have our flaws. And if you just sit for a second and examine your lives, you would see that that's true, that we do not do the things that we want to do, but that the evil that lives inside of us often takes over. And that encountering holiness would make us realize that we are fools in need of a savior. And Jesus came for that very purpose. And he was the only one who could save us from our sins. So Jesus came to be our savior. What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? We have gone over first that he is the son, that he is the savior. It also means that Jesus is Lord. That he is the only one to be worshipped. He is the only one to be praised. That there is none other like him. And that the only way to heaven, the only way that you will be saved is by believing in Jesus Christ. The person who is fully God and fully man who came to save sinners. And John makes this very clear that there is no other way to heaven except through Jesus Christ the Son. Verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Meaning that because Jesus is Lord, because he is Savior, because he is fully God and fully man, there is no other way to obtain salvation. In our modern world today, this is quite offensive. We are often labeled arrogant for believing that we have the truth and that we have the only way. And 
you know, Christians don't help our cause because oftentimes we act in that way. But I just want all of us to sit and think about the implications of us saying that, yes, maybe there's another way. And I want to give you that premise just for a second. Let's just say there's another way. You understand that if we accept that term, then we have dismantled Christianity altogether. Why? Our doctrines start with a good God. We believe in a God who is absolute justice, absolute love, who is immensely wise and all immensely powerful. He is able to do all things and he is able to foresee all things and he has complete sovereignty. That is what we believe and that is what is taught in the Bible. And then the only way, according to scripture, that people would be saved is that if he sent his only begotten son to die, to suffer so that we might be saved. If we say that there is another way, then God is not God. If there was another way to heaven, what was the point of sending Jesus? What was the point of him dying on the cross? If there was another way, why believe in Jesus at all? Why go through this whole scenario? Why allow your only begotten son whom you love to get defiled and to put it plainly to be emasculated in front of the whole world? when there was always another way. I hope that you would see that we do not hold this stance to be arrogant. We do not hold this stance to say that we are better than other religions. We are saying it is the only way because if it's not true, we have no religion at all. Jesus dying on the cross is huge. It means the world to us. And to simply say, surely there's another way, flies in the face of everything that we believe in. So we may disagree that Christianity may not be the right religion. But please believe us when we say, this is what we must believe. Christ is everything to us. And we cannot just simply say, there is another way. And so when we have the Son, God has promised us we have the Father. And verse 25 promised us then we will have eternal life. But where's the comforting part? And that is when John brings in the charisma. What is charisma? Now, again, I just want us to remind us what context we're looking at, that this letter was originally written because there was some kind of split 
Remember verse 19, it says this, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So here there is some kind of split, and John is trying to comfort them. And this is how John comforts them. He reminds them of the charisma. What is the charisma? It comes in verse 20 and 27. It says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Verse 27, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. Charisma is the Greek word for anointing. How do you know? that Jesus is the Christ. You know because you simply believe. And why do you believe? Because the Holy Spirit lives within you. Here is the miraculous and great comfort of our God. The reason you are able to confess your sins the reason you are able to see Jesus as Lord is because you have been anointed by the Holy Spirit. You do not believe in Jesus because you are smart. I have met a lot of Christians. Not all of us are smart. That's truth. Not all of us are wise. But all of us believe in the same thing because it doesn't matter of your intellect. Now, I've also heard I only believe this because of my circumstances. I was raised in a Christian home or I suffered a traumatic experience. Of course you would believe in Jesus at this point. And I don't believe that at all. There are so many things that my parents have told me and I've completely disregarded. Isn't that true? I've met so many Republican parents and their Democrat kids. I've met so many parents tell their daughters and sons to get married at the age of 21, yet none of them do. I've heard many parents tell them that an important concept of life is that you must have a clean room. There are no clean rooms in households. So to simply say that you believe because your family told you to, I think is a misnomer. Because your parents would probably have still loved you if you no longer believed. The reason that all of us are here and the reason that we believe is because the Holy Spirit resides in us. Brothers and sisters, that is the miracle that we revel in. Every day you wake up and you say, God, I am a sinner, but I believe is a miracle, a modern day miracle of your belief. And this is why God is saying that if you believe these things, the Holy Spirit abides in you and you abide in God. It means the Holy Spirit lives within you, the same spirit that comes from Christ. And you know what that means? Our flesh is united to Jesus Christ's flesh himself via the Holy Spirit. This is the worldview we must have. 
And let me tell you one other thing. You don't always have to wake up and feel giddy about God. As long as you wake up and some days you're like, I'm not feeling it. This is not, I, I don't know what to do, but God, maybe you're there. Please forgive. I don't know. That's a miracle. You don't have to be a zealous Christian to experience this miracle. You can be a Christian who is struggling along the way. Just the fact that you are attempting to follow God, that you believe Jesus is the Christ, is a miracle, and the Holy Spirit does live in you. Take comfort and joy in that. Why is this comforting news when we talk about the Antichrist? Because John is saying that they don't have him. They don't have him. You do. Praise God for that wonderful truth. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the miracle has happened and is continuing. May you all continue to abide in him. And may you believe that Jesus is the Christ for now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we believe. We know that we only believe because of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for changing our hearts. Thank you for opening our eyes. Thank you that we are allowed to see your grace. May you continue to be with us. And may we continue, continue to abide in you now and forevermore. Amen.